The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, I want to begin tonight with a little different approach. I want to confess to you from the beginning that what we're about to encounter is, um, is going to draw on for a moment, and I'm well aware of that. And it's intentional. In his book on ancient Near Eastern texts, which is not a book that a lot of people like to read, but it's very interesting, uh, there's a study of texts that were written by pagan religions during the time of the writing of the Old Testament. And it's used often as comparative religions. Well, it was written by J.B. Pritchard and records a prayer that was offered contemporary to Moses' time to an unknown God. This prayer is addressed to no particular God, but to all gods. All gods in general. Even those may, who may not be known and are definitely unknown. The purpose of the prayer is to claim relief from the suffering that is perceived to be inflicted by this God. From the heart of this writer, he understands that some infraction has been made against the divine law. He doesn't understand what he's done wrong. He doesn't understand what to do to make it right. Moreover, he claims that the whole human race is, by nature, ignorant of God's will, of God's standard, of God's justice, and God's character. This is a prayer offered to an ancient, unknown God. And just at the point where you are going to start saying, really, I want you to ask yourself, really? Carved on a stone, it says this. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the heart of my God be quieted toward me. May the heart of my goddess be quieted toward me. May my God and goddess be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance, I have eaten that forbidden of my God. In ignorance, I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. O Lord, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O my God, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O my goddess, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O goddess whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgression which I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing which I have eaten, indeed, I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of His heart looked at me. The God in the rage of His heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. When the God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me, then the goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. 
Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I'm troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address thee the prayer. Ever incline me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before thee. How long, O my goddess, whom I know or do not know, how long will you be hostile in heart toward me, and will your heart not be quieted? Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everything that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. O my Lord, do not cast thy servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin which I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression which I have committed, let the wind carry it away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. O oh my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O oh my Goddess, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O oh God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing thy praise. Make thy heart like the heart of a real mother. Be quieted toward me. Like a real mother and a real father, may it be quieted toward me. Amazing words. You hear the desperation of a man who longs to have his sin be quieted from the God who is going to judge him. He's longing for forgiveness. But the most impressive thing to me about this ancient Near Eastern prayer is this is a man who has no idea who God is, whether it's a he or a she, no idea what he's like, no idea what he expects, no idea what he requires, no idea what he or she wants him to do. He has no idea what he's done wrong. He keeps talking about in ignorance. I've, I've eaten, in ignorance I've stepped. I've done all these things and I don't know what I've done wrong. I don't know what you're like. Please be merciful. This reflects why the Israelites for 176 verses, in every single verse, can say through that psalmist how thankful they were for God's law. God's law does the exact opposite of what this ancient Near Eastern prayer seeks. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God requires. It takes all the guesswork out of God. His character, His requirements are revealed in His law. That law is reflected in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. It's really a misnomer to call it the Mosaic Covenant, though. We call it that technically, the, the covenant that God made with Israel through the Book of the Covenant and through the, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. It's really the, more like the is, Israelite Covenant. He made it with the people through Moses, not just to Moses. Well, we're going to start studying Deuteronomy. But in order to study Deuteronomy, we have to go to a very grave and very sad passage in Numbers 
chapter 20. Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 20. If you are a Bible student, you will know immediately what that chapter represents. That stands out in um, the history of biblical flow as the place where Moses misstepped so badly it cost him everything he wanted. People are out in the wilderness. The people are starving, so God gives them manna. They complain about the manna, so God gives them quail. They have trouble finding water, so God gives them a supernatural rock that supplies water. The trip to the promised land should have taken 11 days. And God caused it to last 40 years. They needed water, so Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, God provides. He tells Moses, take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock. Is that clear enough? Speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. This is very clear instruction. God says, talk to the rock. The rock will flow with water. It will be a spring fountainhead. You shall thus spring, bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. This was going to be an entire river flowing out of a rock. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. So much conjecture about what's going on in the sin of Moses here, in the psychology of what he was thinking. Was he being presumptuous? Was he being um, braggadocious? Was he being gregarious? Why did he not obey the Lord? God said, speak to the rock. (laughs) He didn't just hit the rock, but what? He hit it twice. And then he also said, we are bringing this water to you. There's something going on that's askew there. Because Moses did this, follow the thinking here, because Moses did this, we have the book of Deuteronomy. You say, what do you mean by that? The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons. It's three sermons and a song and a conclusion. It's sermons that Moses gave about the law, explaining the law, recounting the law, giving the history of Israel on the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan at the land of promise. Moses couldn't enter. This is Moses' swan song. God said, I'm going to give you a chance to speak to the people 
one last time. And so the book of Deuteronomy is his sermon on the law, recounting the law, holding the people accountable to the law. After this, Moses would go up on mountain, die, and an angel would bury him. Moses couldn't go into the land. But in God's gracious provision, instead of just having Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, we have Deuteronomy, which is not just a recounting of the law. What you find in Deuteronomy is a series of sermons where Moses doesn't just say, here's what God said. He knew we already had Exodus. He said, this is what God says and what it means. There's much application driven through the words of Moses here. And you can hear him as, as a grandfather talking to grandchildren and saying, this is what you need to do and how you need to live. This is what the Lord requires and expects of you. Deuteronomy then provides for the sons and daughters of Israel the exact opposite of what that prayer expresses. Everything that the people wanted to know about God, they were given. It was the revealing of God's character. Everything they needed to know to please God, it explained His requirements. So we come to Deuteronomy. We're just going to look at an overview of it and just going to dig into a couple of passages just to get our bearings tonight. Deuteronomy, it's a simple word that means second law. It doesn't mean that it was a second law. It means Moses gave the law a second time and gave explanation along with the law as he gave it. It has 34 chapters, 959 verses, 28,352 words. Deuteronomy, you might be interested to know, is mentioned or referenced or quoted more times in the rest of the Bible than any other book. It is the most referenced book in the Bible. It was the book that Jesus quoted most from. It's the reiteration and recounting of the law of God to the generation that was born in the wilderness. Remember, because the, 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 the people doubted God, because they complained with God, God said, you're going to die in the wilderness, but your children will go into the promised land. These were the congregants to whom Moses preached the sermons of Deuteronomy so they would have a, a last and final check, a last final orientation and recalibration so that as they walked into the land, the last thing they heard before they went into the land was God, His character, and His requirements. The whole book is really a plea for holiness and obedience and worship. If you look at the bulletin then on the website, what we've, what we've done in looking at Deuteronomy is that it's really a call to living a life of holiness and a life of worship. Worship is impossible without holiness, and holiness is an expression of worship. Now, the book covers about two months of history. We'll get into that a little as we get started in the coming weeks. And the purpose is to call every Israelite, every believer in Yahweh to faithful covenant obedience because of God's gracious salvation and revelation of Himself. Now, let me ask you a question that someone asked me last week. What, what does Yahweh mean? Now, it's the, you know, the Hebrews called it the ineffable tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four letters, the ineffable tetragrammaton. Yod, hey, wow, hey, or valve, hey. These are four Hebrew letters, and they were the personal name given by God that is, I am who I am. It's his name. It means the great I am. This is the name of the personal name of God. When you see in your Bibles, at least in the New American Standard, the, the all caps, capital, big, big capital L, and lower caps, O-R-D, that's the word Yahweh. So occasionally throughout the study, I'll say Yahweh, and that's, that's what I mean. It's God's personal name. 
There's all history with that word. Um, the, the Jews were afraid to even speak it, and so they, would, they eventually added the vowels of, uh, of Adonai and got Jehovah out of it. And it was just a, uh, so when you read Jehovah, that, that's really a, a made up name that combines the, the vowel pointings from Adonai, which are not in the original Hebrew, to the, the consonants Yahweh, and it, was, it came out to be that word. So Yahweh is the one who is accented here. Yahweh is the lawgiver. Yahweh is the one who is the personal God who is revealing himself. He's the God of creation, He's the God that the children of Israel knew about. In a general sense, they weren't quite as bad as this guy who was preaching at, or praying rather at the first of the service when I was quoting his prayer, but they didn't know the specifics about him. So when Moses finally came and gave them the specifics of God, his character, his law, his requirements, they were overwhelmed, overjoyed. Most people look at the children of Israel and say, oh, those poor Israelites, they were under the law. How horrible. We're under grace. No, no, no. They were so happy, and you and I should be happy, that God defined himself. He defined his requirements. He didn't leave us for for guesswork like this poor guy praying a few moments ago. Also, you have to remember that the God presented in the law, the God presented in the law is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. Sometimes we think, well, we have the Old Testament God that was the Father. We have the New Testament God that's the Son. And the Holy Spirit just kind of gets to leak back and forth between the Testaments. It's not how it works at all. God in flesh. I lo- We're going to sing it just in a few uh, weeks. In fact, we can sing it every week if you want to. Veiled in flesh, the what? The Godhead. It doesn't say the second person of the Trinity, see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. Hail incarnate. Deity. God became flesh. Don't think this is, this is the God in the Old Testament who sent Jesus. We have one God, as Deuteronomy 6 is going to teach us. One God, three in one, one in three. So, again, the purpose is to call the believers in Yahweh to faithful covenant obedience with the God who has saved them. Now, this is going to be a little tricky. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. You see it specifically in the Psalms when referencing salvation. Because salvation in Exodus has a very physical sense that became metaphorical and allegorical for salvation in a spiritual sense. You see this double-dipped in Psalm 95, for example, where God gives salvation. He talks about the great salvation of delivering the people out of Egypt in the Exodus to the Promised Land. And that salvation experience, God saving the people from Egypt, becomes the paradigm and the foundation and the analogy and the symbolism of God's saving internally. But make no mistake, not everyone who came out of Egypt saved by God through the Exodus was saved by God in spiritual salvation. Have you read about the sons of Korah? Not everyone was truly converted. Paul talks about that in Romans 9. He says, remember, not all Israel was Israel. In other words, just because you were a Jew, just because you were circumcised, didn't mean you were going to go to heaven. It was still by grace, through faith, in God's revealed means. So he's calling people, look, if you say you belong to God, you better act like it. 
Deuteronomy is the Old Testament Romans and it's the Old Testament John. What I mean by that is it's the theological book of the Old Testament and it's the book that reveals the most about God's character. You read the prophets, major and minor prophets. You read the Psalms. You read the, the wisdom literature. And what you see over and over is they, their, their benchmark, their reference point is the book of Deuteronomy. Let me go one step further. You'll, we'll see as we get later in the book there are sections of the law in Deuteronomy that God actually requires the nations to be accountable to. You say, well, how could they be accountable to the law if they had never been given the law? Oh, we're going to find out in a few weeks in Romans 2, right? Because those moral aspects of the law were already written where? In the heart. God requires allegiance to the one who gave the conscience as defined by His law. Now, what I want to do is just give you an overview, and then we're going to drill down uh, more specifically in a minute. It's, it's five uh, main sections, five main subdivisions. We'll, we'll break these down as we're studying through. Moses' first sermon is chapters 1 through 4. It's basically a review of the journey to the promised land. He gives a history. Why is he giving a history? Because that new generation ha- had multiple versions of the history. Can you imagine couple million people out in the desert listening to complaining parents and, and grandparents, watching them die, burying grandparents and parents out in the wilderness. And they probably had very edited versions of why they were out in the wilderness when the promised land was just a few days away. Well, Moses makes sure that the generation going into the land knows exactly the history of the Exodus up to that moment. That way they would have a historical basis, by the way, for for obeying God. The second sermon is roughly chapters 5 to 26, and it's it's a restatement of the law with commentary. He restates the law, not all of it, and some of it he adds quite a bit of writer information to it. It's a sermon on the law. The third section is the re-emphasis of the responsibility for renewing the covenant. God made you a promise. You made one back that you would be His people and represent His great name. You are required to act like it. Then in uh, chapters 31 and 32 is the song of Moses. And then Moses' final benediction in the last section in in chapters 33 and 34. Those are the five main sections and we'll kind of move through those at a fair clip. I don't know how long it's going to take us to do Deuteronomy, but we're going to move much faster than we are in Romans. Now, back to the bad rep on the law. I just get really frustrated with Christians who have nothing kind or good to say about the law. Let's be clear. Remember what we said last week. The Christian is not under the law, as Paul says. What does he mean by that? We're not under the law as a way to be saved. Get this, though. Neither were the Old Testament Jews. Second Temple uh, nomism. Nomism is the word for law, Greek word for law. Second Temple understanding of the law had become so superstitious that the rabbis were actually teaching that the law could save you. That's who Jesus was confronting when the Pharisees and Sadducees over and over. They even added laws. Well, you can only walk so many steps from your house, and if you go one step beyond, you broke the law, but you can't do that. You can milk the cow here, but not do it. Just ridiculous applications of God's requirements. The law was intended to show us two things. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, right? Every law can be broken down into two simple categories. 
Because Jesus said, all that's contained in the law and prophets are this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. So all of these laws in principle, according to Jesus, every commandment in the Ten Commandments, every law that's casuistic, remember we talked about that case law, if you do this, then this will happen, every apodictic law, thou shalt, thou shalt not, all those laws fall into the category of teaching us something about how to love God, something about how to love our neighbor as ourself. It's a very simple paradigm to lay on this. So, this is not obsolete in principle. It's obsolete in terms of ruling a nation. We're, we're not called anywhere, make sure America or Russia or South Africa or Cambodia is ruled by the, the theocratic you know, um, little aspects of the law. We've got to be careful with that because then you have to say, which part? I mean, where are our Nazarites? Where are the long-haired people? who will have taken a vow to never cut their, their hair or their sideburns. Well, where's that law in the church? So you're instantly put in the category, if you say it's applicable today, say, okay, which ones? It says not to eat pork. That's a bad law for Kansas City. Well, obviously Acts 10 says, here's the sheet, look, see the unclean Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Which parts are applicable? Well, it's very easy when we see, in principle, we can tell. This is going to teach me something about how to love God better. Because it tells me something about Him. It tells me something He requires. It tells me how pedantic He is. You read the law on the tabernacle in the temple, and you get the idea, this God, Yahweh, is pretty detailed. All the way down to the paint. And that's exactly what He wanted us to know. Every detail matters. Every single molecule, every single second is to come under the sovereign control of a sovereign God. And that's why we have all these pedantic little laws. Well, I mean, we'll study this when we get into the fourth commandment. Why does God say, rest one day? The answer is because He can. He can tell us whatever He wants to do on any day. And we'll have fun with that one because... You've got to be careful being a Sabbatarian, because if you're a Sabbatarian, you really believe in a six-day work week, not a five. But we'll talk about that a little later. Well, let's, let's just have a little, little bit of a roller sleeves up Bible study for a minute, just to get a, a, our, handles, our hands on, um, on Deuteronomy. I've borrowed from a mentor of mine who I, I studied under, um, Dan Block, who's written an amazing commentary on Deuteronomy. I have notes from him in the class I took, and I cannot improve on his little um, outline here, so I'm going to tell you up front, I am absolutely... Well, I guess you're not plagiarizing if you give credit, right? I'm stealing his stuff. Um, What we want to do is look at his little list. He provides a helpful summary of the role and nature of the law in Israel as defined by Deuteronomy. We talked about that the last two weeks. Now we're going to let Deuteronomy define that for us. And there are... um, Just five little points that he makes that I want to give to you and just talk about. We're going to turn to some scripture and look at them uh, from kind of a high-altitude perspective. Number one, he says this, The law is not a burden, but a response to the supreme and unique privilege of knowing God's will. He said it again. The law is not a burden, it wasn't a burden to Israel, but a response to the supreme and unique privilege of knowing 
God's will. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's look at some of these passages and let Moses, through Deuteronomy, instruct us on the nature and the role of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 6 to 8. This is again in that historical section, remember. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, let's just go back to verse 1, okay? We've got to pick it up. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep it Keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the cause of Baal Peor and for all the men who follow Baal Peor. And the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you held fast to the Lord your God. But because you, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. The ones who didn't had obviously perished. See, I've taught you the statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, here it is. Keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now now stop right there. Having the law was a unique evangelistic tool. People were going to say, why why do you do that? Why do you not do that? He says, this is your wisdom. People are going to ask about this. Verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Remember the prayer? Who can call on God and know what He's like? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? He's saying, do you understand how privileged you are to know the God of the universe who has given you His requirements and revealed His character? It's not a burden. It's a privilege to have the law. Secondly, Block says this, the law is not a precondition to salvation. I said that last week. The law is not a precondition to salvation, but the grateful response of those who have already been saved. The law is not a precondition to salvation, but the grateful response of those who have already been saved. Turn over to chapter 6. You know, chapter 6, the great Shema passage, we'll slow down when we get to this passage. And I love this. The fathers are supposed to teach their sons. Fathers are supposed to teach their families. There's supposed to be inter-family discipleship happening on the law. Then finally he gives the reason, verse 20, when your son asks in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which the Lord, our God, commanded you? This is great. Eventually, hopefully, every parent gets to the point where we say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, God said, God said, and eventually they say, time out. Why? 
How, how come? That's a good moment. Verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, Remember the metaphor that being saved out of Egypt becomes a metaphor for salvation of the soul? Look at this. Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and brought the, and the Lord brought us up from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, now we move from the physical to the spiritual, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us up from here in order to bring us in it, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is for the, to this day. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all His commandments before the Lord our God just as He commanded us. God saves. He says, then obey. If I saved you, you obey me. You are the slave. I am the master. It's a response to salvation. God saves us out of Egypt. We ought to obey Him. God saves the soul. We ought to obey Him as well. The third in his summary of the role and nature of the law. The law is not primarily a duty imposed by one party on another but an expression of covenant love. This is so personal. The law is not primarily a duty imposed by one party on another, but an expression of covenant love. You've got to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 26. This is so refreshing. We're going to talk about love in just a few minutes. The first place we're ever told to love God or that God loves us is in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, look down uh, at verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have to declare, today declared the Lord to be your God. Now think about this. You have declared that Yahweh is yours, the Lord to be your God. And that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His ordinances, and listen to His voice. The Lord has today declared you to be His people. Hear the covenant. You committed yourself to God. Listen to God's grace. The Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession, as He promised you and that you should keep all His commandments, and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. This covenant that God's made with you, this covenant that you made with God in the relationship they had as spiritual Israel, in the relationship that we have, this side of the New Testament, to Christ, has demands, has commands that are associated and attached to it. Frankly, I don't know how anyone, anyone who's involved in the controversy about the Lordship of Christ can read Deuteronomy with a 
with a view that God has no part of demanding us to obey Him. It's on every page. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. We'll come back to that love in just a moment. Fourthly, the law is not merely an external act. It's important. This is where the Jews blew it in the time of Jesus. The law is not merely an external act, but evidence of the circumcision of one's heart and the internal disposition of fear and love for God. The law is not merely an external act, but evidence of the circumcision of one's heart and the internal disposition of fear and love for God. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. So clear, so explicit, so gracious. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, let's pick it up in verse 12. In fact, I think verse 12 is, 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 the, is the, the, the Mount Everest of the whole book. Everything really builds toward 10-12. Everything flows from 10-12. If you want to underline, highlight, circle, star, whatever you do in your Bible, to a verse in Deuteronomy, this is the verse. This is the final apologetic. This is the explanation for why we have these sermons in this book. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Remember our prayer at the beginning? Poor God saying, what, if I've done something, if I've eaten something, if I've stepped in a place, I don't know what I've done, I'm not, I'm not sure. Here it is. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear, reverence, worship, serve the Lord your God. To walk in all His ways and love Him. Love Him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes when I'm, which I'm commanding you today. I love this. For your what? For your good. He's not an evil genie up there throwing down lightning bolts trying to get us to obey, elbowing the angels and say, see, I got him to do that. This is not a trick he's teaching like a dog. This is for our good. Every command he gives us brings us good in time and Him glory in eternity. Behold, verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that's in it. He reminds you, hey, God made it all and He owns it all. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them. And He chose their descendants, you, after them, even you above all the peoples, as it is to this day. Now, just a little footnote on that. We're going to talk so much about this in the coming months. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Why did He give them compassion? Why them and not another guy? Why? And here's the answer. You got a drum roll? You ready? Here's the answer. Because he did. Read Exodus 33 and 34. He says, I'm compassionate on whom I want to be compassionate. I'm gracious on whom I'll be gracious. 
That is such a perfect parallel. Why did he choose you and me? Why, why are we saved? Was it because we were handsome? Good-looking, talented, special? No. We have no reason to say God would choose us either. Look at the, the response here. So, circumcise your heart. This is internal, not external. Remember, even poor, even poor Peter in Galatians 2 doesn't get it. He's running around telling people, Jesus saves, you must be saved, but you better be circumcised. You better follow the Old Testament law. And Paul has to publicly rebuke Peter in God's words, which he says is eternal. Do you realize that rebuke is canonized for all eternity? Peter got it right later. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. See that? We're born with a stiff arm in God's face and a stiff neck to God. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. Do you see what he's doing? Remember what God did for you, and that's how you're supposed to be to others, because that's imitating God. You shall fear the Lord your God and shall serve Him and cling to Him. You shall swear by His name. He is your praise. And He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons and on now. Now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. Love manifests itself in obedience. You cannot say, I love God, but I will not obey Him in this category of my life. Utterly impossible. Oh, you're not going to obey Him in different categories. I'm not going to obey Him in different categories, in every category. But you cannot willfully say, I love God, but I refuse to obey Him in this section of my life. Impossible. You can say that, but you're not a Christian. You, you can say, I belong to the Lord, but not honor and serve him and the Lord will say Matthew chapter 7 many will say to me in that day Lord didn't we didn't we didn't we in your name and he will say depart from me I never knew you because it was external it didn't flow from a circumcised heart he took that outward sign of circumcision which the Jews so so rallied in and said this is who we are he said no it's really about what's going on in here internal disposition of fear and love. We're going to have so much to study about the fear of God in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's all over the place. What does fearing God mean? It means being afraid of Him. It means recognizing Him as a threat. And once you see what kind of God we have, you'll understand that He's a threat. And then you'll understand that the one who is our judge is also our Savior. 
and you will worship in an amazing, grateful, overflowing realization that your judge is your Savior. Fifthly, more scripture, but we'll get into it as we study the book. This is Dan Block's fifth little um, summary. The law is not a pressured response to a tyrant. I love that. The law is not a pressured response to a tyrant. You ever been to the grocery store and you've seen that, that parent who's just yelling at and screaming at their kid? That, that, that's, that's not what God is doing in his requirement for obedience. The law is not a pressured response to a tyrant, but a willing subordination. I love that. A willing subordination of one's entire being to the gracious, divine Sovereign Lord. That's the word suzerain. Sovereign Lord. For this, look back over for a moment at chapter 6. Why do we do this? Is this a tyrant? Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with, with all your mind, comprehensive love. These words which I'm commanding you today shall, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We remember the prayer, the ancient Near Eastern guy who's just no concept that God would love him and he would love God. So Moses in these 34 chapters, repeats the law with commentary. He gives them this final swan song. You're going in the land, I can't. I'm going to go up and die in the mountain, the angel's going to bury me. You, you, by the way, you know why he, God had the angel bury Moses so no one would know where it is? The text tells us nowhere, no one knows where it is to, these day, to this day. I, I, I would just crack up. There was a, an, uh, uh, an article surfacing around the internet that said they had found Moses' grave. Really? Is the angel up there going, God, I failed. I and they found it. No. They didn't find Moses as a grave. They found bones on a mountain. Moses repeats this law. And you say, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me? Because it's going to teach us how to love God comprehensively, to love our neighbor as ourself. And it will teach us that we have a God who loves us for no other reason but that he loved us. In fact, he loved us in spite of us. That new generation didn't know the word of God. There were new challenges, new battles to be fought. Joshua is now their leader. There were new temptations that would be present in the promised land that were echoed in the old temptations that were past and sometimes failed, and he wants them to remember their history. One overarching theme from the book of Deuteronomy, students, please listen. History 
matters, especially divine history. God has a high premium on remembering sacred history. We're going to find the love of God. I love that song that we sang this morning. The love of God is deeper than we can describe. We had the ocean were ink and every man were a scribe. We took a quill and started trying to write the love of God. We'd, We'd fill the whole skies with the reason. We're going to discover the first place that the love of God, love of God for us, and love for us of God is explained in any detail is in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's the climax, the conclusion of the law. Please get out of your mind. Ah, the law, it's in my Bible reading, but I'm just going to, I'm going to get through it. It doesn't matter. It does matter. Or God would have finished Malachi brought in the, the, the New Testament and said, okay, let's throw that away. Let's burn all the Old Testaments. Why do we still have this? Because without it, we cannot understand the God who became flesh. God loved them because He loved them. He loves us because He loves us. Good news. It's great news. I'm not sure there's any better news. And since Deuteronomy is most referenced by our Lord Himself, most referenced in the rest of the Bible, it ought to be something we have a a very, a fairly good understanding of and recollection of. It breaks down very simple. Let me encourage you to, to read through it. Read through it in the next week if you can. It is it is intriguing stuff. There, there are some laws you're going to read and you're going to go, huh? But when you do, ask yourself, is this teaching me something about how to love God better or a principle of how I could love my neighbor better? Is it teaching them something that they could apply that I, I won't apply? I'm not going to obey the, 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 the law of, um, of not necessarily boiling a, a kid in his mother's milk. You say, well, I, I don't think I'll do that anyway. Well, what does it even mean? As I said last week, it doesn't mean that you can't eat dairy and meat products at the same table, for which I was hit by a little Jewish man in Israel. We're going to find out what those things mean. And sometimes the details of this book are going to make you scratch your head and tilt your head like a dog listening to a whistle, and you're going to go, what is that? And when you do, just remember, God has the right to define your life in such ways and to such specificity and with such detail that you say, he must be Lord of all or he's not Lord what? At all. Really is the connection with that saying. Do you love God? Then you'll love Deuteronomy. Will you love God? Then you will love Deuteronomy. Um, Spurgeon said, he was asked, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And he said, the one I'm preaching on Sunday. They said, what's your favorite book in the Bible? He said, the one I'm reading currently. Who's your favorite character in the Bible to study and to know, to avoid, and to imitate? He says, the guy I'm studying or the woman I'm studying right now. So for a while, can, can Romans and Deuteronomy kind of be our favorites? It's okay, because we'll get to the rest of the Bible eventually, and it can be our favorite then, too. Read it. 
ask questions. Do this. Read it and take a little pencil. And when you have a question about something, take a pencil and put a question mark in the, in the, in the margin. And let's see if we answer that as we study through. I think you're going to be encouraged uh, not to become an Old Testament Jew and start obeying all these laws in their specificity, but to be a New Testament Christian for whom God has left the law to teach you something about love, loving Him and loving others. Let's pray together. We have confessed, Father, that the God who is revealed, the God who has spoken in this wonderful Older Testament is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in our Savior and You, our Father, and the aid of the Spirit gives us confirmation of Him day by day. We study the book of Deuteronomy as we drill down and mine its depths, unearth its diamonds. I pray that it, it informs us of the comprehensive requirements you have on all of our lives. There's no secret part. There's no part that's not under your control. Lord, give us a head start. Cause us to repent early. Cause us to repent now so that when we come to these passages, we can rejoice in the place you've brought us to and not be weighed down by the requirement. Give us grace to honor you, to learn how to love you better and to learn how to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need you to teach us and to help us apply this book. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.